You are listening to an ODI live event podcast. You can find out more about events and research by the Overseas Development Institute by visiting our website, odi.org. Good evening, everybody, and welcome to the Overseas Development Institute. My name is Alex Thier, and I'm the executive director. We are delighted to have all of you here tonight. Uh, thanks for your patience. The popularity of this event has made it so we have tried to stuff ever more people in uh, to the room because we're very excited uh, about our event tonight on Building Back Better, a Resilient Caribbean. The 2017 hurricane season caused tremendous damage and disruption, and we have people with us tonight who will be able to testify directly uh, to the effects on their country and their people. Uh, those events, however, also did something, I think, quite remarkable uh, in helping to jolt the world awake um, about the challenges and dangers that confront us all. And I think have left us to question not whether we can afford to build back better, but whether we can afford not to. Uh, out of crisis like this is a moment of opportunity, uh, a moment for us to examine the investments to be made uh, and the potential for doing things differently to create a better future. And tonight, we have some people with us to be able to shine light on that moment of opportunity. We are very honored to be joined tonight by the Right Honorable Patricia Scotland, the Secretary General of the Commonwealth. We are also joined by the Honorable Francine Barron, the Minister of Foreign and CARICOM Affairs from Dominica. We will have with us on the screen Ronald Jackson, who is the Executive Director of the Caribbean Disaster Emergency Management Agency. And we are also joined by Dr. John Twigg from ODI. John, I'm looking for you up back there. Um, who is a leading global expert on these issues. Uh, but we are also joined by an incredible audience of experts, uh, both in the room here in London and hundreds more online. Uh, people who have spent the day here talking through some of these challenges and many of you out there. And we invite you not only to appreciate but to join the conversation. We will have the opportunity for audience engagement both online and here in person. Um, and we also ask you to join us online. Uh, the hashtag for the conversation today is Build Back Better. And if you use our handle, at ODIDev, we will carry forward the conversation and even see if we can get trending in London and beyond. Uh, I am delighted now, however, to introduce the chairman of our board, James Cameron. Uh, James is a leading climate change expert and has been working in the salt mines uh, of climate change and negotiations for decades. I won't say how many. Um, uh, but we are delighted to have James here, and I'm going to hand over to him now uh, to introduce our first speaker. Welcome, James. Well, let me add uh, my welcome uh, to you all. Uh, marvelous to see such a full house tribute to our uh, speakers and to the subject matter, um, which is serious, important, and urgent. 
Uh, Alex is, is right. I spent many years, 30 years as of next, working on the climate change issue, and, and my introduction to it was uh, working with the creation of the small island states, the alliance of small island states. So this is a topic that embraces uh, the Caribbean and, and other parts of the world who have suffered many of the same fates. And it's also true that many years ago, uh, 1991, I recall working with the late great David Pierce at UCL, we constructed an insurance regime that we tried to negotiate into the framework convention in 1992 and failed. And I often, I'm afraid, wonder whether had we been successful, whether we would have to have the kind of conversation that we are having today. Still, here it is. We've got a major crisis to address, but we've got some good ideas about how we might do that. And you've been having a great discussion today, I know, about some of those ideas, and we want to hear them. We want to hear them from you in this audience and anybody online who has questions or insights they'd like to share. Just to give you a, a quick run through of how we're going to proceed, we're going to start with the two keynote presentations from Secretary General Scotland and Minister Barron. This will be followed by a short Q&A session, followed by a panel discussion, and then I'll open the floor to further Q&A session uh, that you can all join in on, whether you're here or, or online. And then uh, when we're done in here, we can move next door and we can have a, a networking reception which can carry on. And, and there may well be the one or two topics are better suited for that conversation uh, than here. So do, when we get to the questions phase, pl please do ask questions and you can have debates afterwards over a glass of wine. So um, as Alex said, please do, uh, please do get involved with the hashtag Build Back Better. You never know, we might, we might trend uh, in the, in the uh, social um, media sphere. So now, uh, first great honor is to introduce the Right Honorable Patricia Scotland, Secretary General of the Commonwealth, uh, trained as a lawyer, a barrister. Uh, the Secretary General became the first black woman to be appointed to Queen's Council a good uh, high honor in, in our legal profession, and the youngest woman to be made a QC. Uh, she joined the House of Lords in 1997 and was appointed Attorney General in 2007, the first woman to hold that post since it was created in 1315. And she is the first woman and sixth Secretary General of the Commonwealth appointed in 2016. So the floor is yours, and with great honor, we pass over to you, Patricia. Uh, well, uh, uh, thank you very much, James, honorable ministers, excellencies, Commonwealth friends. The first thing I have to warn you is that I've been sounding like someone out of a James Bond villain movie for a whole week with my voice. So if it cracks, bear with me. Um, I really uh, stand before you uh, today, both as Secretary General of the Commonwealth and as a proud daughter of the Caribbean, uh, born in the beautiful island of Dominica, which, as you know, was devastated uh, by the hurricane season last year. And this means that the matters that we are discussing together today are really very close to my heart indeed. And they are also close to the heart of the whole Commonwealth, because our Commonwealth commitment to mutual support for inclusive development and building resilience to reduce vulnerability has been present throughout the whole 
of our period. So the title of this gathering is composed of what could be called Commonwealth signature words. Building, better, resilient. And of course the Caribbean and Commonwealth go hand in hand. It's impossible to think of one without thinking of the other, particularly within the context of small island states. And under the heading recognition of the needs of small states, our Commonwealth Charter declares and says this. Uh, we are committed to assisting small and developing states in the Commonwealth, including the particular needs of small island developing states in tackling their particular economic, energy, climate change and security challenges and in building their resilience for the future. That was 2013. In the context of sustainable development, the Commonwealth Charter commits us to removing wide disparities and unequal living standards as guided by internationally agreed development goals and to building economic resilience and promoting social equity. It also states, and I quote again, that we are committed to an effective, equitable, rules-based multilateral trading system, the freest possible flow of multilateral trade on terms fair and equitable to all, whilst taking into account the special requirements of small states and developing countries. And we can expect to see fresh collaborative practical action towards collective fulfilment of these commitments when our leaders gather here in London in six weeks' time for the Commonwealth Heads of Government meeting, or CHOGM, as it is more generally known. It's more than 40 years since this biennial meeting of Commonwealth presidents and prime ministers previously assembled in London. And so this will be a very significant occasion. The assembled leaders represent the governments and people of the Commonwealth family, which is made up of 52 independent and equally sovereign states set in every continent and ocean. And we may very soon be 53 countries uh, and more are hoping to join. I, I have almost a daily request for people to know a bit more about the Commonwealth and how do they join. Now there are large and small countries, some with advanced and some with developing economies. Populations range from the very large to the very small. We have India with 1.2 billion and Tuvalu with 11,000 but each of the states are equal in importance to us. And the overarching theme for the Commonwealth Heads of Government meeting is towards a common future. And the focus will be to build on the strengths of the Commonwealth in order to deliver a fairer, more prosperous, secure, sustainable future for all of our citizens, particularly our young people, who account for more than 60% of our combined population. So the 2.4 billion people who live in the Commonwealth amount to about one-third of the world's population. In some of our countries, like Uganda, the uh, percentage of young people is even greater. Uganda has 78% under the age of 30. 
under the age of 18. So Commonwealth programs and projects really help to boost economic growth and encourage trade and to address the threats such as climate change, debt and inequality. And we come together as a Commonwealth not because of shared geography or economic par parity or other similar or mutual interests. We are united by our joint commitment to our core principles, consensus and common action, mutual respects, inclusivity, uh, transparency, accountability, legitimacy and responsiveness. And our values and principles are set out in the Commonwealth Charter and they are fundamental to the way in which the Commonwealth connects and cooperates, including through providing support to build back better for a more resilient uh, Caribbean. And if you look at the Charter, it mirrors almost exactly the 17 uh, clauses and, and of this Sustainable Development Goals. And many of our smaller and our more vulnerable member countries have recently been disrupted and in some cases absolutely devastated by the extreme weather events and other catastrophes. We now see the adverse impact of climate change affecting every single region of the Commonwealth. There have been landslides in Africa, floods in Asia, hurricanes have ruined and devastated the Caribbean and I don't think any of us will ever think of the words Irma and Maria in the same light again. And when I visited the Caribbean three months ago, I saw for myself what that devastation really meant. I knew that going home to Antigua and Barbuda and Dominica after such a catastrophe was going to be difficult. Uh, but nothing, nothing could have prepared me for what I saw or the story that I heard during my visits. As many of you all know, my father's Antiguan and my mother is Dominican and I was born in Dominica. So this was uh, literally looking at places and people that I knew. And flying into Dominica, I hardly recognized the land of my birth. Uh, Maria had devoured almost all of its vegetation. Uh, Dominica is one of the most lush and green islands you will ever have the privilege to see. And all of it was gone. Uh, recently built roads were smashed and barely accessible. Decades of infrastructure and development had been undone. In Barbuda, it was a similar story. Uh, as we travelled along the empty roads on the evacuated island, when my guides pointed out landmarks, they referred to them in the past tense. Uh, this used to be our church. That was our police station. And these were ghostly remains of what shortly before had been a vibrant, almost electrifying community. And it was all gone silent. And such weather patterns uh, are complex. And perversely, while we may see increased incidents of flooding, uh, we're also seeing the negative impact on water security. 
As rainfall and other factors become more unpredictable, cross-regional sustainable land and water management practices aligned with improved approaches to water quality and consumption will become ever more critical to successfully coordinating climate resilient action. And the associated impacts of extreme weather, particularly on food security because of reduced crop production yields, and to human health through risks such as malaria, are also now of grave concern to all of us. Uh, population growth is, of course, another serious component in the climate change challenge. But the disruptive impact of the anthropogenic climate change on the delicate balance of life on this planet poses a real existential threat to many of our communities and in some cases entire countries. So for all of those who've thought for years when we talked of this threat as an existential threat, thought we were crying wolf, well, we've just been eaten because the wolf is really here. And that is why tackling climate change is a priority for collective action by the 52 member countries of the Commonwealth. Because although the shock from recent extreme weather is fresh and immediate, this is not a new or an unexpected crisis, and we can expect it now to happen again and again and again. So it is almost 30 years since in our Lankawi Declaration of 1989, the Commonwealth of Nations collectively expressed deep concern at the threat posed by serious deterioration in the environment, warning that any delay in taking action to halt this progressive deterioration will result in a permanent and irreversible damage. That's what we said as a family in 1989. And resilience is a strength we seek to build in the Commonwealth as a defense against the vulnerabilities resulting from geographic, economic, social, political, and human factors. And the thing that I'm so proud of in the Commonwealth is although we said it in 1989 and people didn't believe us, we didn't stop saying it. And the fact that we've continued and the fact that people are hearing us and seeing the damage is a really important moment for us to grasp. And therefore, I think what was said earlier is all too true. So in the light of these recent catastrophic events and the ever-heightening vulnerability of our member states, we are currently in the process of refreshing our strategy on climate change and increasing its technical breadth. And currently there are four main pillars to our climate change work. So let me say a few words about each of these, if I may. The first, um, there is climate finance. 
Although the international community has pledged billions to address climate change, countries find it extremely difficult to draw from the financing mechanisms such as the Green Climate Fund uh, for projects to help people to adapt to climate change and mitigate its effects. And our Commonwealth Climate Finance Access Hub, which is based in Mauritius, helps countries navigate the complexities associated with climate financing so that they can make successful applications to the international funds that address climate change. And the hub assists uh, member states with human and institutional capacity building, enabling them to unlock funding for mitigation and adaptation so that they would not otherwise be able to reach. And Antigua and Barbuda and Dominica are among the countries who are already uh, being supported. And second, uh, there is climate change law. At COP23, we launched our Law and Climate Change Toolkit, providing online access across all 52 Commonwealth states to the best and most salient legal statutes and frameworks required to support climate change. And we are also working to help our member states in the Caribbean and elsewhere with strengthening legal frameworks to meet mitigation and adaptation goals and to ensure the smooth relief efforts after adverse weather and other emergencies. And our newly established Office of Civil and Criminal Justice Reform is providing legislative reform uh, guides and tool drafting tools, drawing together the best from member countries so that it can be uh, taken up to accelerate progress and implementation of good practice in other Commonwealth jurisdictions. We know all only too well that the acuity of legal expertise that is needed in this field is relatively thin on the ground. So the more we can pool, collate and share, uh, the better we will enable our member states to address these issues. The third is regenerative development. As our understanding has evolved, the regenerative model for building resilience to climate change has emerged including specific expressions of collective commitment, such as the Commonwealth Blue Charter, which really started uh, at the Oceans Conference um, in the UN last year. Uh, and we are expecting um, there to be significant focus on this new initiative at the Commonwealth Heads of Government meeting. It may be one of the major things which will come out of uh, Chogham. Maybe, because of course, as the mere servant of the member states, I couldn't possibly comment. Uh, the ecosystems uh, form critical building blocks which assist us in building resilience together. And coral reefs, so vulnerable to increased storms, perform essential flood protection. And the ecological protection of land and river catchments help us to ensure water security and guard against land degradation and drought. And from this recognition grows the concept of regenerative development, which encompasses our belief that climate adaptation and resilience must be bottom up, placing people and ecosystem service and function at their very core. 
Now, our focus is particularly on those aspects of regenerative development which help us to reduce vulnerability by tackling the dimensions of climate change that affect human security. And we set human, ecology and climate resilience of communities at the core of all of our work. And the fourth, there is surveillance, monitoring and technical capacity building. Many of the nations most at risk from climate change are least responsible for it. Yet they are operating at the extremely limited data uh, environments. And time series data is generally very poor. And so there are issues of accuracy associated with projecting change and impact. And this is one of the many technical challenges associated with capacity for building resilience to climate change in small countries and island states, because most of our small countries have public institutions with only limited technical or other resources available for the development of forecasting models and surveillance tools. If you think about countries in the uh, um, Pacific with only a population of 11 or 10,000 people, that's a big ask. That's a very big ask. So feeling inadequately resourced um, really affects people's morale and can significantly undermine the effectiveness of professionals when it comes to advocacy and advising on important policy decisions. And to counter this, we're exploring ways of improving collection and access to climate change data and of making surveillance tools available for Commonwealth countries that would otherwise really struggle because of technical capacity constraints. And more specifically, and of particular importance in the Caribbean context, is I have an, and undertaken to do everything in my power to challenge rules which render a high income but climate vulnerable country which has just lost all its economic sectors and its entire GDP to a hurricane ineligible for official um, development assistance and ODA. And I can't tell you how extraordinary it was when I sat and watched um, a woman, a, a very uh, well-resourced woman, sitting in the shambles of what used to be her house, and the only thing that was recognisable was her fridge and a mattress. And telling that woman that she was an affluent, middle-income country person was a very interesting moment. So uh, we have already seen lots of progress on this and, and with donor countries now committed to reviewing of the rules and recognition I think is due to the UK for its intervention in this regard but it's been a snowball that we've been pushing up that hill for many years, I think all the whole 30 years that you've been at it and, and I won't say how long I've been doing the same because of course I'm very young. Um, so we have uh, a Commonwealth expert on the ground in Antigua and Barbuda, and we will soon have a Commonwealth specialist advisor in place alongside Dominica on the development of strong climate change projects 
which will uh, attract funding. So in conclusion, may I say how really delighted uh, we are to be working in partnership with ODI um, and with each and every one of you and the organisations that you represent, either as members or as friends or as allies of the Commonwealth, because building back better for a truly resilient Caribbean is our shared ambition. But it is an urgent and resounding rallying cry, and far more than just a slogan. It must be our commitment and become a reality for the common good and for our commonwealth. And I do not just thank you for what you've done today and what you will do this evening, but I really want to thank you for what you will do in the future. Because without our joint, collaborative, powerful action, nothing's going to happen. And for all those people who are destitute and without a home and who aren't here to thank you themselves, I want to thank you on their behalf. Well, thank you very much indeed. I think I'm going to go straight on to to uh, Francine now to, to speak, because we'll have plenty of time for, for questions and we want to get the audience involved as well. And so our next keynote speaker is uh, Honourable Francine Barron, Minister of Foreign Affairs and CARICOM Affairs of the Commonwealth of Dominica. So why don't you come into Honourable Barron, uh, Barron previously served as Attorney General from 2007 to 2010 and High Commissioner to the UK from 2012 to 2014. So the floor is yours. Thank you, James. Uh, let me recognize uh, a daughter of the soil of Dominica, the Secretary General of the Commonwealth, Baroness Scotland, uh, Excellencies, distinguished ladies and gentlemen, uh, good evening, and I extend warmest greetings to you from the friendliest of countries in the Caribbean, the Commonwealth of Dominica. I want to thank the leadership of the ODI for taking the initiative in putting this event together. It is both timely and needed for us in this particularly vulnerable region of the world, and more so for us in Dominica. I think that my Prime Minister said it well when he said that we are on the front line of the war on climate change, a war that we did not start, and a war that we are powerless to end. Many of you would have seen the graphic imagery of the damage and destruction that was unleashed on our tiny island by this monster megastorm Hurricane Maria on the 18th of September. When such events occur, it is critical that there be an immediate response of search and rescue and then in delivering relief. Capacity is always an issue in such times, and we are grateful, therefore, for the quick action of many countries, including the United Kingdom and, and the international and regional agencies who quickly came to our assistance in the post-disaster relief and recovery phases. Were it not for their unconditional support, the commentary on our efforts to clean up the country and deliver urgently needed relief to our citizens would not be as positive as it has been. Mr. Chairman, no part of the island was spared. Every single sector and every single family was negatively affected by this hurricane. 
The post-disaster needs assessment conducted by the World Bank in conjunction with the UN, ECCB, the CDB, and the EU to assess the disaster impact concluded as follows, and I quote, Hurricane Maria resulted in total damages of U.S. $931 million and losses of U.S. $382 million, which amounts to 226% of gross domestic product. The identified recovery needs for recon reconstruction and resilience interventions incorporating the principle of building back better where possible amount to U.S. $1.37 billion. Now, you would appreciate for a, a country where the budget is EC1 billion, to have US $1.37 billion in damage is very significant. We believe, however, that the true amount that it will cost Dominica to recover is likely to be much more than what is stated in the report. Given that losses and damages for the environment were not quantified, and that entire communities will have to be relocated because of their extreme vulnerabilities to floods and land slippages. We have made much progress since the storm, but so much more remains to be done. Road access has been restored across the island. All schools have reopened. Those which were completely destroyed are operating on a shift system with other schools. Major health services are now available, and water services have been restored to 80% of the island and the airport and seaports are operating. Unfortunately, approximately 80% of homes still require substantial repair to or rebuilding of their roofs. Electricity has only been returned to about 10% of customers, and it is anticipated that full coverage will not be achieved before April. The economy remains severely affected as damage to farms, hotels, and businesses will take time to recover. Our forest reserves will also require extensive rehabilitation. We are delighted at the positive response of the international community to Prime Minister Skerritt's declaration when he addressed the United Nations a few days after the storm, where he said that it was the goal and vision of his government to make Dominica the first climate-resilient nation in the world. This was no idle statement on his part. We are serious about making this vision a reality and we have been deeply encouraged with the pledges made at the donor conference which followed. Mr. Chairman, I am here to tell this audience and those listening via social media that we, no we are not about to take a step of faith into the dark, unaware of the challenges and possible pitfalls that lie ahead. We have been wrestling with the impacts of climate change on Dominica for quite some time. And we want to ensure that we have made the right policy decisions and developed the types of programs that will significantly reduce or eliminate Dominica's vulnerabilities to its, to its impacts. It is in this context that our low-carbon climate resilience strategy was developed. It is also in this context that we have been pursuing the development of our geothermal resources as a signal of our resolve to move away from fossil fuels, a major contributor to climate change. Two years before Hurricane Maria, Tropical Storm Erica destroyed 90% of our GDP, with approximately six hours of continuous heavy rainfall. Major damage was done to our infrastructure in some parts of the island. We resolved then to approach the rebuilding program with a build back better approach. This was all aimed at building a more resilient country. 
barely had the ink dried on the numerous surveys, designs, and cost estimates that had to be done in order to fix the damaged and destroyed infrastructure when Maria struck. Maria has made it necessary for us to re-strategize. Our current goal to build the world's first climate resilient country leads to a re redefining of the scope of the task ahead. We are now focused on the policies and interventions that are critical to ensuring climate resilience in all sectors of the economy and within communities. While the literature on building back better after a disaster is growing, we believe it is of utmost importance that we seek not only the input of the international community, but also we must engage our population in crafting the plan for a climate resilient Dominica. On February 19th, therefore, we will be convening a national rebuild and economic partnership consultation. This consultation will be themed building a climate resilient nation, our collective responsibility. We think it is important to engage all stakeholders and interests within the country in developing a national plan for climate resilience. We have learned some important lessons along the way. These lessons are important for policy formulation in the short and medium term and an appropriate in a small island developing state context. I will now share some of these with you. It is absolutely necessary to have a well-functioning national disaster committee chaired by the highest executive authority. This body must be supported by sectoral emergency committees who must meet regularly and have a plan that is periodically tested for its effectiveness. There should be an office responsible for disaster management which is adequately staffed with the appropriate technical personnel and well-resourced. That office should be charged with the responsibility of issuing clear and timely information before disaster, where, possi where possible during the event and after, and they should be guardians of relief supplies after a disaster. Every effort should be made to train and develop at the local or village level disaster committees to lead and coordinate activities in the community following a disaster and before the external assistance becomes available. In relation to shelters, it has been our practice to use schools, churches, resource centers, and private dwellings as shelters. However, in most cases, these structures were not designed as shelters and are just as vulnerable to suffering damage during a storm, negatively impacting the person seeking shelter there. After the storm, it also affects the resumption of operations of these places. This is of particular concern where, where the occupation of schools as shelters affects the timely reopening of schools after a disaster. In the building of resilience, therefore, one must design and construct robust and well-equipped shelters with well-trained shelter managers and adequate support staff and supplies. The sheer volume of relief supplies that can flow into a small country like Dominica can overwhelm the capacity of our ports. This has been our experience post-Maria. Solutions to this may be found in expanding the seaport, training port management in logistics, and in ensuring that the port is adequately equipped for the task. The issue of coordination of relief agencies is an area that always presents a challenge. When one is in crisis mode immediately after a disaster, how do you coordinate the activities of the various relief agencies and response teams that are activated to ensure greater effectiveness? It is important to have a clear plan and someone with dedicated responsibility to manage that process and serve as the interface between government and these agencies. Fiscal policy, of course, should not be overlooked in building resilience. 
in our small economies, we do not have significant reserves to turn to when disaster strikes. When one's warehousing and distributive systems are destroyed, it is critical that the government has a fund that it can utilize to supply the needs of its citizens for food and water and to bring relief in other areas. After Tropical Storm Erica, the government had announced its intention to create a vulnerability risk reduction fund. Such a fund is essential. It can provide a fallback position in leveraging resources to treat with risks and vulnerabilities generated as a result of external economic factors or disasters. It is important that the necessary support is given for the creation of such a fund. Ladies and gentlemen, in normal times, small states like Dominica suffer from capacity deficits, which slows down policy formulation and program implementation. This is exacerbated after a disaster. The human and financial resources available to us at this time simply cannot do the job required to make Dominica the first climate resilient nation in the world. It is for this reason that Prime Minister Skerritt de determined that if we are to carry out the interventions necessary to climate-proof Dominica and to execute it in a timely fashion, it was necessary to establish an agency fully dedicated to the recovery process. We have therefore been moving forward with the assistance of DFID and in consultation with international development partners to develop a framework document for the creation of a climate resilience execution agency for Dominica called CREED. It is intended that this agency will streamline our policy formulation and project cycle management systems and implement the climate resilient strategy. The CREED will have a clear mandate to coordinate and implement projects. It will enjoy a certain degree of, of autonomy to carry out its objective and will have the benefit of input from all sectors in society. It will be adequately staffed and resourced. Mr. Chairman, ladies and gentlemen, I have attempted in the short presentation to provide just a snapshot of some of the challenges and policy issues that Dominica has confronted and will have to address in the short, medium and long term. This is by no means exhaustive. We know we have to tackle the contentious matter of zoning and land use in a more decisive manner. The types of industries we encourage and promote in a country that stands proud as a nature island of the Caribbean. To become the world's first climate resilient nation will require, among other things, profound reflection and decision making. We will have to deliberate on and craft an appropriate legal framework to both support and enhance the development of a climate resilient country. We foresee a road that will be long and arduous, but we are not daunted. We are indeed encouraged by the over overwhelming support we continue to receive from our friends and the international community, the ODI being no exception. It is your faith in us and our trust in you that gives us the confidence that we will in fact succeed. Thank you very much. Podium sort of gets in your way a bit. Well, thank you very much both uh, for for those presentations. Um, 
we have a couple of questions before we go to the, the full panel. But um, let me let me start with uh, the honourable minister. Uh, give me some sense of of the reasons why the practical reasons why it was so hard to build back better after Erica and before uh, Maria. It, what 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 was in the way? What made that so difficult to do that perhaps now we can address and fix this time round? I think the challenge is that you, you face a variety of different issues. Uh, the topography of the island of Dominica is such that it makes it very difficult to build infrastructure that is, that is resilient. We, we are very mountainous and we have a high degree of rainfall. And we also have 365 rivers, we say, one for every day of the year. Now, these things, when it rains, you, 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 you have these rivers become um, raging monsters and, and, and massive flooding takes place. Of course, you have lots of landslides as well. Uh, so it requires there to be uh, significant expert advice on what is the best way of building infrastructure that can be resilient to those challenges. Uh, the, after Tropical Storm Erica, uh, government decided that we would build back better. And in fact, some of the infrastructure that was built then took, took into account that principle and stood up very well to Hurricane Maria. So the bridges that were built were built higher. They were built with a, built with a longer span. And therefore, uh, the, when the rivers became flooded, um, they were able to, the water was able to pass under the bridge without affecting the, the, the bridge structure and um, in ensuring that the abutments were not undermined. Uh, with the challenge of creating a climate resilient nation is to be able to address all of the different interventions that will be necessary. We have, uh, many communities that are very vulnerable because of their proximity to rivers and in some instances to the sea. And we would have to relocate some communities in order to make them safe. Just the sheer cost of having to implement interventions to protect those communities, it does not make financial sense to do so and therefore one has to look at relocating those communities. Now, we're dealing with an island of 70,000 people where you have a, it's a small tax base and um, we are also considered to be uh, upper middle income countries and therefore access to financing is very difficult. In order to build back better, you must build stronger. It's going to be more costly to do it. And where you have difficulty in accessing concessional financing and grants and so on, it, it makes it difficult for a small country to be able to do what is necessary to build back better. And also to be able to pay for the expert advice that is necessary so that you, you, you design structures that can withstand hurricanes, and not only hurricanes, but earthquakes and, and other challenges. So essentially, um, uh, you, you need to have that access to expert advice and you need to have the financing in order to, um, 
to build back better and to build resilience. And we, there are many, you have the Green Climate Fund and other um, funds that have been designed for um, assisting with, with mitigation and ad adaptation to climate change. But many of us are unable to access it. And a lot of that is because the, the requirements to access the funding, we are not able to, to meet that requirement but because just the documentation that has to be prepared in order for you to access the financing requires you to get experts to prepare it. Um, and so it's, there has to be a mechanism in place that makes it easier for the countries that really need to access that financing to be able to do so. And, and there were one or two attempts in Bonn, in part with the leadership of the Fijian presidency, to grapple with those issues. Right. Uh, I don't know whether you feel encouraged by any of those that have emerged. I mean, the, the adaptation fund was replenished. Uh, there were this, this INSEE resilience initiative that the Germans and the, and the UK have funded. Um, there are other initiatives to bring together expertise to help with uh, insurance matters, but it's probably not the whole, probably doesn't solve all of your problems, but were you encouraged by that? Does that look well, more attractive? Well, the challenge that we have is that time is not on our side. In five months' time, we'll be going into another hurricane season, and unfortunately, we're told that it may be worse than the last, and therefore, we need access to the financing now to begin the projects, to begin um, the, the act to, to take the actions that are necessary. So yes, I'm encouraged that the, the word is getting out that we need to be able to have a, a better system of accessing the finance, but we, we still need to act more quickly than we're, we're acting now, and we have to make the funds available in order that the countries that are affected by these hurricanes and, and can, can begin to adapt uh, and mitigate the effects of, of those things by, by building the infrastructure and other things. Secretary General, I mean, it follows on from that. You know, where, where do you see opportunities for the international community to support highly vulnerable member states to build back, back better and therefore reduce risk in the future? What, what, what promising signs do you see? Perhaps there's some opportunity with Chogham mm. coming up to, to draw attention to this mm. matter. Well, I think one of the great things is to see that the things that we've already identified are exactly what countries are telling us they need. So, for instance, the Climate Finance Access Hub, which is going to give countries the acuity of understanding and expertise that they need to make the applications to get the money for the access that uh, will build the, ac uh, the adaptation and uh, resilience needed is, is critical. But also there's an opportunity for us to pool our expertise on what sustainable buildings look like. So, for example, the minister said so clearly some of the challenges that are created by the topography. Well, one of the big issues is building uh, engineering uh, difficulties that are presented by building buildings on a slope. A normal foundation in a, in a usual house is a encompass about 15% of your build is going to be on the foundation. In a country such as Dominica, 55% is on the foundation. And that imbalance is an engineering challenge that we have. And so I think there's a huge opportunity for us to pool 
our knowledge and expertise of what works and what doesn't work and to share that capacity because small countries cannot do it on their own but the problems that are faced by the small countries are almost identical to the problems that are faced by the larger ones it's just they don't have as much money so the whole point of the Commonwealth's activity is to pool knowledge experience and expertise to enable um, all our countries to take advantage of what is known but there is a big opportunity as well as a big challenge I wonder if we could just take you know two or three questions from the floor uh, for the Minister and the Secretary-General before we turn to Ronald and, uh, and John on the panel. Are there, are there two or three questions that... And we, we have microphones too, so... One here and one there, so start. Oops. <coughs> Sorry, go there first and then come here. Yeah. Th thank you very Please much. Please introduce yourself, yeah. yeah my, my name is Edwin Laura. I'm with the Ramphal Institute. I wanted to first of all thank the Honourable Minister and the Secretary-General for the very informative presentations. Um, in, of course, given what has happened in, in Dominica, it, it's clear that the intensity of the hurricanes that strike regularly and apparently with increasing ferocity through the, through the region, um, the loss that results, as has been mentioned in the case of uh, Maria, over 200% of GDP in, um, in Dominica, means that there has to be some sort of financial, external financial support in order to rebuild, because of course the country has lost its, um, its income generating capacity. Now, um, uh, James, in your introduction, you spoke about um, insurance, the insurance proposal from about 30 years ago. In a specific country, of course, having suffered that great loss, there's no internal solution, financial solution, that could an, um, support rebuilding, which suggests, therefore, that one needs a wider um, pool from which the, ri for which the risk could be born. I do know that in the Caribbean there was an insurance yeah. um, facility. I don't think that has ever worked very well. But I wonder if we are looking towards the future, whether this might not be an area in which there could be the greater uh, attraction of international support for the development of, of that institution and, and the funding. Thank you. Over here. Introduce yourself, please. Uh, Nestor from the Cabin Office. Uh, my question is for Francine. Uh, so next hurricane season is coming a lot sooner than, than we would like it to, but it's coming. Uh, and there will be other impactful events. And populations that have been affected in the past will be affected again. And it's going to be very hard for them to keep going. And, and, and psychologically, it's going to be quite devastating. Now, how, what specific efforts are, are, are you collectively trying to put forward to build that psychological resilience of the population to say, how, how do we, given what's been thrown at us, keep going? So, um, well, okay, well, let's have one more. 
um, because those were great. We, we will have more time later, I promise you, because we've got a big Q&A session once we've had the two other speakers. I want to try and keep the time. But I'll be very quick. Uh, Karen Mayhill, the High Commissioner for Antigua and Barbuda, I actually wanted to ask uh, both ladies uh, and for their assessment of how the regional mechanisms, uh, SEDEMA, et cetera, how do you see them uh, uh, operating in these environments and how can we strengthen them? Or, or, or if they're doing fantastically well, it's okay, but are there ways that we can strengthen them to be uh, mobilized more effectively, uh, uh, more quickly uh, when we have these asks? Because to wait for a boat to come from Britain or from uh, a plane when Antigua's next door, for example, and not affected in a particular instance might be we need to look at. So I wanted to ask you about regional strength um, in your assessment. Feel free. I mean, let's start with the minister and we can work down. And if the chance, I might help with the answer to the first question. Okay. Um, I, I want to touch on what uh, the question that was asked by this gentleman here. The, I think that the, the, the population has sh of Dominica has shown great resilience. Despite the tremendous loss that has been suffered, there has been a, a sort of fighting spirit that has developed. Um, people have not lost hope. And what, what has, has happened, I think people have bought into the idea of making the country resilient. And so there has been a, a concerted effort to bring information to people about making their homes more resilient so that when they're building back their, the, the, and repairing the damage that has been done to their homes, that they take into account the new building codes and they build a structure that is, that is um, more resilient. And so numerous um, seminars have been taking place, numerous discussions have been taking place with, with building contractors. Uh, information has been going out there into the public to how do you make your roof stronger so that the next hurricane is less likely to blow it away. Um, and, and so that has been, that sort of discussion has been taking place. The, the fact is that in the Caribbean, we, we don't have much of a choice. We know that these storms will come. The, the most that we can do is to try to be as prepared as possible for them. And we, we believe that there has been a strong showing of support from the international community and a willingness to assist us with our goal of, of making Dominica more resilient. Um, we, have, we, we have made it very clear to people about this new agency that we're creating that has the support and the backing of the donors. We believe that that agency will be able to uh, develop the projects and execute our prog projects much more quickly than we've been able to in the past because of lack of capacity. And so, wh whereas not much can be done before the next hurricane season, we're hoping that we are not so unlucky to be hit by another major storm this year. And so we're, we're hoping that in the interim, before such an event happens in Dominica again, that we will get many projects started. We will be able to build um, proper hurricane shelters, we will be able to, to, to build proper schools and we'll be able to, to help people provide support to people to rebuild their homes in a more resilient way because many people are going to need that support because um, many of their homes are either not insured or underinsured and um, therefore they will need a lot of support 
to, to, to get their homes to become more resilient to these to these um to, to these disasters. Just to touch on what the, the High Commissioner from Antigua and Barbuda asked in relation to our regional systems. Both um, CDMA and the which is the Caribbean Disaster Emergency Management Agency and the Regional Security um, System, the RSS, were very instrumental in assisting us immediately after the storm, along, of course, with, with our, our other CARICOM um, nations and, and other partners. Um, CDMA plays a very important role in the Caribbean, but of course, as with everything else, it is um, under-resourced and, and um, it could do a lot more if it had more staff and it had more resources available to it. We have also found from a, from a CARICOM or Caribbean perspective as well, uh, I think there's a lot more that CDMA organizations like well, CDMA and RSS can be more helpful to the wider region. So for example, it was a challenge to get assistance to the overseas territories because you have to get the approvals in order to go in and help. So when Hurricane Irma, for example, passed, it was, we wanted to help, but it was difficult for us to go in quickly to help because we did not have agreements in place that would allow us to, to go in right away to begin to help. So these are some of the issues that we have to look at to ensure that other, as a region, we can help ourselves because we are right there. We don't have to wait for, us, for something to come from the, U, for help to come from the UK or for help to come from the Netherlands when we are right there in the Caribbean and can provide that support to other islands. So these are one of the things that we, we need to look at. A good point to follow up on, isn't it? A, a practical, but also legal and political matter that needs to be resolved. Yeah. <clears throat> Secretary General, would you, would you like to respond to any of, any of those questions? Well, particularly in relation to Sedema, I think Sedema needs to be really congratulated because it's a model which I'd very much like to see replicated in other regions because it's the ability to coordinate and to respond quickly. Um, when we were talking to the agencies on the ground immediately after the disaster, it was clear that there were some legal impediments in the way. So, yes. for example, the opportunity to get all the attorney generals um, to give the particular authorities because there weren't legal instruments to allow people to respond quickly. So I think there's a real opportunity for us to do a wash-up yeah. about all the things that went right but all the things that went wrong so that before the next disaster happens, we can move out some of those legal impediments and put in place the protocols, which will mean a rapid response from our partners will be more easily done. And, and I'm hoping that some of the things we've created, like we've now created the Office of Civil and Criminal Justice Reform, which um, allows the 52 ministries of justice to get together and to collaborate, this may be one of the instruments that we can use to move those out of the way. But I also think that there needs to be some sort of um, uh, mechanism that we operate together in a very practical um, way to create a disaster response mechanism toolkit so that all of us know that when you press a button exactly what's going to happen and how we can better assist each other. I think this terrible disaster is actually the most interesting uh, case study because in the past we were preparing for one 
Category 5 hurricane in a lifetime. There was one in 72. We had three within a very short time. We were preparing for one country to be assaulted in a region, not nine. And so if you look at what happened during this period, we had every complexity known to man, and I think we need to take that as a case study, disaggregate what happened so that we are able to better respond and be more resilient ourselves. And just to say, um, in terms of the spirit of um, the Caribbean, we saw the most terrible devastation, but I think I will never uh, forget the overwhelming feeling of extraordinary pride in the people, because we forget the resilience of our people at our peril, because there were people in Dominica, in Barbuda, in Antigua, saying they took everything from us. They took every material thing we possess, but they left us with the most precious thing, which is our lives. And they were determined to build back better. And uh, faith actually played a huge part in that recovery because um, people prayed. And um, that prayer and that belief in God was incredibly important to the majority of people who did well. And it's just a reality of um, the lives in the Caribbean. Yes. Uh, I just want to respond briefly uh, to the question about uh, whether or not there is some requirement, need for an international mechanism to cope with the reality that countries that have had that much economic loss uh, with no time to adapt their, their, their current uh, economies obviously need external assistance. But how to make that something that is not um, a question of a, a donor nation providing an amount but as more of a, a trigger for the release of something more approaching compensation. And this has been a problem area for the negotiations right from the beginning when, uh, when the Alliance of Small Island States first articulated the need for something. And what tends to happen is we have conversations about loss and damage that are never resolved, but they exert some kind of moral or political pressure on other mechanisms that can deal with some aspects of the need. And insurance is one of those parallel conversations, which is why we tried all those years ago to create an insurance mechanism that <coughs> responded to the real world facts of sea level rise being the most reliable proxy or measurement of the rate of change in the environment, which in turn would pick up some of the other phenomena like warming oceans and increased hurricane activity, and then had a mechanism for taking payment into a pooled fund out of those countries that had high per capita emissions. Now, we were never able to win that. We never got that into the text. But some of the basic principles remain. And the understanding that there needs to be some kind of pooled fund that pays out in a more, in an accelerated, in a timely manner, because I know from other countries, Fiji being an example the year before, it takes too long to get the payments out, and you can't restart your economy in those circumstances. That is an enterprise really worth working on. And some modest progress was made in Bonn in November, but needs to be maintained this year um, uh, with, with 
the handover to Poland coming shortly. Mm -hmm. There is, I should just add to that, there is uh, an insurance facility for the Caribbean, yes. but the size uh, or the magnitude of the damage that is done, the payouts, although they're very quick, is not sufficient to address the issues. No, we're talking about something much bigger, but we're also having to contemplate something which was true all the way back then when we yeah. talked about this before we came in here, that many of the risks that we want to see insured are uninsurable because they are known. That they're, they're, they're sea level rise is, is a known inevitability and therefore is uninsurable. So you have to design systems that create a marketplace for, them, for the management of that risk that are in some sense artificial, they're constructs, but they're constructs for a purpose that, that the marketplace here in London could, could play in, but someone has to write the rules. And we, 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 we haven't got there. But I, but I strongly suggest that you and the rest of us keep thinking about it and keep exerting some pressure because it's obviously necessary. So that's actually not a bad bridge um, to, to the next part of our, of our <coughs> session, which is our panel discussion, uh, where we now turn, sadly, um, uh, Ronald Jackson can't be with us, but he's with us um, uh, via the screen, and, and Ronald is the executive director of the Caribbean Disaster Emergency Management Agency, which has already been referred to, and, and you previously served, uh, served, Ronald, as the Director General of the Office of Disaster Preparedness and Emergency Management in Jamaica, and we're very pleased to have you here, and I know that uh, Secretary General wanted to talk to you, and you can do it uh, remotely. Um, and then we've also got Dr. John Twig, who's the re Principal Research Fellow here at ODI, and John's been working on these matters for 25 years or so focused on disaster risk reduction and international development, and uh, we're very pleased to have him on our panel. But we're going to start um, with you, Ronald, if you're, if you're ready, and uh, we have a good line. We'll, we'll get you to contribute, so over to you. Oh, I, no, I thought, uh, let, me just, let me just say um, hello to all our distinguished uh, panelists, speakers, uh, who spoke earlier, as well as your audience and those listening online. Uh, what I want to, to, to offer to the debate um, or to the discussions, um, I will start perhaps with, with this thought. Um, I've heard about building back better, and I've been hearing about building back better uh, for, for quite some time. Um, it takes me back to Hurricane Gilbert um, back in Jamaica. I was a, a young young teenager then perhaps, <laughs> uh, and, and later in 2004, after Hurricane Ivan. And practicing in this field, I've all often been frustrated that the term seems to be uh, handed about more as a uh, sort of us phrase, but I struggled to really see the application of the term. And so as I listened, I reflected somewhat and I thought to myself, one of the things we should really be talking about, um, and it is embodied in, in what uh, Baroness Scotland said, um, it is embodied in some of the comments made by the Honorable Minister, but I think we need to look at this idea of not just building better, but building smarter, and also I've added maintain and adjust. 
And, and I put that there because, you know, even as we talk about climate change and we examine the whole issue around cost to, to address some of the um, requirements for building more robust infrastructure, it is always going to be fleeting if we're not pursuing a policy which is taking stock of the changes over longer time scale within our respective environment. And as I thought back to my own experience in Jamaica, I, I can point to successes um, in the past, in the 80s, um, in the 70s, in terms of approaches at the time, not called building back better, but approaches to building, building back in a much more effective way. But even those successes, uh, which we should have uh, continued but also improved upon, had inherent weaknesses in terms of the failure to prescribe or to enforce no-build zones that would prevent persons who moved out of areas of high risk from going, or new persons from inhabiting those areas were not, were not pursued. So there are things we could learn and things that, um, you know, a lot of the lessons we're seeing today are not new. We've just not addressed them in a sort of programmatic way. And so I think the starting point has to be filling the requirements for effective management of risk. And, and what am I saying there? I think we have to look at the whole issue of the creating, creating the enabling environment, policy, legislation, not necessarily creating new ones but harmonization and enforcement, knowledge and practice, and addressing the issue of governance and leadership, uh, and also provide incentives. A lot of what is going to be required in, in, in rebuilding and building back better is a long-term endeavor. It's not a half-year, one-year, two-year. It is a multi-year, longer-term initiative, hence the cost you're having to, to grapple with. There has to be a mix of, of incentives in there for people at the community level to invest in hurricane straps. Throughout all of the disaster sites I visited, there were signature, uh, signature signs that we do know how to build um, better at the housing, in terms of our housing stock. A number of units, modest units, stood up, remained in place. Why? Why did that happen? What can we learn from that kind of construction? Is it that we had people who invested in very simple things, the appropriate design criteria, the application of building straps, the appropriate spacing of timber framing on the rooftops, the appropriate pitch of the units, appropriately fitting on the galvanized sheeting. So we can, we can in fact build back better, but we have to provide a sort of carrot and the stick to get people to comply with the measures that are there. And that includes the private sector because they will have to be a major partner in the journey around the sort of investment over longer term. But they have to comply with the requisite laws that are on the books. And until we realize that recovery and reconstruction planning does not start at the end of the adverse event, but that it is a process which requires knowing and understanding risk, and then Knowing risk, understanding risk and vulnerability, and then developing the likely scenarios, costing those scenarios, and essentially designing the kind of, of plans that would have been pulled through the planning and development community, but also the requisite financing um, 
outline behind it. We're going to be struggling. And this is, this is not new. I think the Japanese, if you look at the, the great earthquake, um, you know, they were able to uh, pull out a draw and pull out a, a plan for reconstructing the areas because they knew those areas were at risk to a particular hazard and they planned for that particular eventuality. And I think that is where we need to get. We need to use risk information, data, vulnerability studies, because we knew. We knew there were communities that were vulnerable and the state they were in. And so we have to move to that. We have to look at the appropriate application of enforcement of standards. They're already on the books. Are we enforcing them? We must also not shy away from the politics. And it's very important because in our, in our Caribbean community, politics do play a role. We should not shy away from it. We should recognize it, embrace it, and the recovery and reconstruction process must acknowledge that it exists and develop sort of bipartisan avenues to navigate a successful outcome of the, of the reconstruction and recovery process. Because in building back, there are going to be some winners, some losers, whether it is at the household level, but also politically. How do we navigate that so at the end of the day, the people win, countries win, and the economic prosperity programs are sustained? We have to look at the engagement of the communities in the process, not just after the event, but also in the understanding risk process, the design of the reconstruction solutions based on the scenario so that they are there because at the end of the day, if that is not done, then the, the tyranny of the expedient is what takes place. Governments come under tremendous pressure to provide restitution for the affected in the immediate days. And that can lead to uh, a sort of break in our intent around achieving uh, you know, the building back better um, concept. And the private sector has to be involved. So the enabling environment for private sector investment in some of the very expensive areas of the Build Back Better has to also be jump-started. It's an opportunity for us to look at our own economy and economic diversification uh, going forward. One of the things that struck me as I listened to the conversations around climate and climate resilience, um, and I said to myself, one of the challenges facing the region is also the seismic and volcanic hazard. So it, it simply can't be about building a climate-resilient Caribbean, but looking more at the language of a risk-resilient Caribbean that factors in the, the issues related to climate, but the issues also related to the very thing that gives us our beauty in the region, but can also render us um, at risk from, from, when, from it is when, when they rupture. So I think we need to harmonize efforts at attaining risk-resilience with our efforts to tackle the impact of climate and the impact of disaster risk, along with the attainment of the sustainable development goals. Why resources are limited, time is limited, and we don't want to, at the end of the day, create waste or frustrate. I think we need to look in our small island development states as how we bring these in line they are all towards one common endeavor, which is the overarching prosperity of the region and the region's people. So I think that is something that we have to look at. And within the context of CARICOM and the, the CSME movement, I am one that 
struggles to come to grips with this view that we don't have capacity. We may not have capacity in a small, one of our small islands, but if we look at the region as a collective, we can pull resources across other member states into supporting some of our sister and brother islands that may have capacity challenges and truly bring to life the idea of CSME and what was proposed in the context of, of CARICOM and the Treaty of Shagaramas. I will leave it there and offer my other comments to, to any other uh, questions or the discussion as it goes on. Thank you. Thank you very much, Ronald. So, John, I turn to you now um, as an expert in, in community resilience. Where do you see the opportunities for a more resilient recovery? Is anything happening in the Caribbean that is distinct or different from what you've seen in other places? What, what lessons are there to learn from the, uh, the community resilience work that you've, you've been a part of for these years? I think the, the first thing to recognize is that all the debate about build back better takes place in a post-disaster context which is probably the worst time to be thinking about building back better from one perspective in that you've suffered enormous loss. Um, so while it's very salient, it's in everyone's minds, it's actually very difficult to launch it. You're dealing with what well, disasters are by definition, extreme events, Irma and Maria were particularly extreme events. When you're dealing with devastation on that scale, it's difficult to know, you know where you're starting from, but it's really hard to plan where you're going to get to. You can't, you can't blueprint that kind of process because every, every context and every situation will be different. Um, and the resources you have access to will vary. We've heard already about the, the difficulties in accessing certain kinds of resource and capacity for this. So it's, it's, there are recovery plans and they look very good on paper, but to some extent it's a journey without a map because you don't know what you're going to encounter upon the way. And what, uh, having listened to some, you know, very m moving and, and affecting descriptions of the consequences on communities uh, from these um, storms, it, uh, are there any and are any sort of universal truths that need to be shared? I mean, I, I, I take your point absolutely about the variety and the and the fact that one has to understand the particulars of of place, but um, you know, what common themes can be shared? amongst those who are affected about how to recover in the most effective way? Well, I think one universal truth that isn't universally acknowledged is that actually communities are the main actors in their own recovery, certainly in disaster response. Uh, and and uh, th that's uh, often invisible when you, when you read... You don't, the media don't really cover it very well. International agencies don't really talk about it because they talk about their own interventions. Um, and whether it's emergency response, where you often get spontaneous volunteering on a huge scale, um, or long-term recovery, rebuilding houses and so on, it's, it's very often the, the majority of that work is done by communities rather than external assistance. And we don't understand those processes well enough and how we can, how we can support them. But it's an interesting story to tell. Yes. I mean, in a sense, there's a communication of, um, opportunity, if you like, there to tell the story of those who, 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 who revealed that resilience that the first 
question pointed to and, and how and, and there are opportunities to to support that those processes more effectively rather yeah. than running the show but actually yes. support it I mean Ronald talked about an enabling environment yeah. you can have an enabling environment that supports self-recovery for example yes that's a nice that's a nice phrase yeah I, I'm going to suggest that we go straight into to the audience now and I I, I want to go straight to the lady in orange who, who wanted to ask a question before and, uh, and can lead off this next section and then we can orchestrate a conversation around it with, with the whole panel, sure. including Ronald, of course. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, Tanya Popo from the United Nations. Um, building on some of the discussion about preparedness for disaster recovery and resilience, um, in terms of innovation, I've seen how it can have a huge impact, particularly across Asia. Um, I've worked in Asia in disaster risk recover recovery and I just wonder... Um, in terms of the Caribbean, how can innovation really make a difference here and what's being done in terms of innovation? You mean um, examples of successful ways of coping with disasters that could be shared? Sure, um, but particularly employing innovative practices and methodologies. Such as? Can you give us some examples? Such as web platforms to unite people, such yeah. as using um, apps in terms of uh, gathering data, yep. post-disaster risks, um, forming kind of supporting the planning and recovery um, documentation. So rather than it just being done by hand, having real-time data to feed back into yep. the planning teams, like what what's going on in the Caribbean. Yep. We take a couple more. Uh, no, directly behind. <coughs> now look over here. Then there's Dirk. And then Thanks very much. Uh, my name is Geraldine O'Callaghan. I'm from DFID. Um, I wanted to uh, ask Ronald a question. I mean, I think when we, when we think about what happened in this hurricane season, it's really daunting looking ahead and thinking about building back better. I think there's a real question about where to start, and it can feel really daunting. I think one thing that we haven't heard enough from is what went well uh, and what didn't go so well. Um, I, I note the Secretary General was saying, let's do an evaluation. My understanding is that Sedema has done an evaluation uh, of the response, and I, and I feel it would be really useful to get a summary of where you think communities, governments, donors really um, did the right thing and where we need to do more in preparation for the next season. Well, that's going to be one for you in a moment. Um, Dirk and... Um, over there, and there's, there's lots. So let's take Dirk, and then one, and then we have those two, and then we'll go on to some answers. Thank you, Dirk Tefelder from the ODI. I've really enjoyed um, the presentations and discussions. Um, we had a wonderful exposition of what uh, the, the, the Commonwealth is doing by the uh, Commonwealth Sec Secretary General around the climate change work, the, the Blue Charter, for example, which is really um, pro looks really pr promising. Um, there are other areas where the Commonwealth is also doing fantastic work. It's the resilience profiling work has been going on for two decades, long before some of the other uh, donor agencies were, were looking into this. It's also doing important work in the area of trade and advocacy for uh, for small states in the in, in international trade trade arena which is also really important so my my question really is um, not just about um, the importance of the scale 
speed and the, and the cost of accessibility uh, accessibility of climate finance, which I think we all agree is a really important issue that needs to be addressed both by, by donors and also on the recipient side, but also about what, is there an opportunity for trade and investment policies to be thinking around building back uh, better? Are there uh, issues around trade, big, transforming economies so that they become uh, more Actually, resilient more to resilient shocks? In that sense, uh, yeah. What is the role of the private sector in, in helping this process? How can you channel the private sector to invest uh, more uh, with, with, with urgency in particular areas that are um, that can help you become more resilient. Like the example of renewables that I got from your previous session, which is a, which is well, exactly. You don't have to import fossil fuel subsidy, yeah. uh, fossil fuel, yeah. uh, which is very costly. But you could, for example, try and invest in renewable energy, um, which make your, your which is a win-win-win situation. Yeah. Behind. Thank you very much, and, and, and Dirk has, um, as always, mentioned some of the things that I wanted to mention. <laughs> but uh, I'm Jodie Keane from the Commonwealth Secretariat, so um, thank you, Secretary-General and um, Honourable Minister. Um, great interventions. Um, James, I think this is a question for you, really, um, because you have spoken about the um, alliance of small island um, states and what the group has been able to achieve um, in the kind of environmental sphere and, and climate change negotiations and so on. But, but I wanted to um, kind of push you um, a bit, and, and all panellists really, in terms of framing this in terms of global economic governance. It's a global economic governance issue um, as well. I think we've, we, there is a, a kind of precedent now that the, you know, the UK has made a statement on odour rules for high-income small states that are extremely vulnerable and this is the case for Caribbean small states and it's also the case for small states in the Pacific. Yeah. Um, so I work in the trade arena and I'm always struck that LDCs are recognised by the trade community and WTO members but small states don't get the same recognition and don't get the same treatment and I think this is, you know, this is a kind of global economic governance issue. So it's kind of making the, the case on the environmental front, on the trade front, and also the finance um, front too. No one has mentioned shock facilities in this room. And I'm quite surprised, actually, because you know, a few years ago, shock facilities, small states, this was a quite a, a, a big issue. But no one has actually mentioned that here today. So just, just wanted to push the panelists just in terms of global economic governance and building back better or perhaps getting them fit for purpose, really. Okay. Thank you. Last one over here, and then we'll, take, so we'll have some uh, responses. Dorothea Hodge, um, a former representative for the government of Anguilla and now with the Ramphal Institute. I'd like to really thank the panel uh, for today's discussion. It's been absolutely extraordinary. Um, uh, just a very quick question. I returned from Anguilla and St. Martin a few weeks ago, and <clears throat> what was particularly noticeable, not only the great losses, but actually the point that the Honourable Minister made that the next hurricane season is five months away. I'd be quite keen to hear from the panel um, uh, their view on the single most important action to be taken within the next um, in the next couple of months to make the most difference in supporting those communities to build back better and develop their own res resilience. Thanks. What an excellent question. All right, there's plenty there. <laughs> uh, lots of good questions. Uh, let me let me just open it up across the panel to the free for all. Let's start with a minister and then we can work down. You pick up the questions you want and I'll make sure everybody 
gets an answer. Sure. Uh, the lady in orange, I'm sorry, I, I, I forgot your name. <laughs> you spoke about um, doing things in a more innovative way. I think one of the things that we have realized that the, these extreme weather events are going to be the new normal. And uh, it cannot be business as usual. We have to find creative ways of dealing with the, with the situation that we're faced with now. Um, I cannot say that we have identified at this point uh, innovative ways of, of dealing with it. What we are embarking on is a, in a, a process of consultation, wide consultation locally, and um, drawing on the experience of um, our international partners. Because we, we have to find a way to do things differently. And I think that is, that is partly one of the reasons why this agency was formed uh, because we know that we have to be able to um, move more quickly than we've been doing in the past. And um, I think if it works the way we, we would like it to work, it's something that can be replicated in other parts of the Caribbean. The point was made that it's a bad time to try to do that after a disaster, but you must start at some point. And therefore, if we do this and we do, it, do this properly, then our other um, sister islands in the Caribbean can look at that model and, and begin to work on it even before such an event occurs so that if it does occur in the future, they are already prepared and working on it. So um, just to, to, to uh, touch on the point that was made by the lady from the Commonwealth, <coughs> we in the Caribbean have been making the argument for a very long time that small island developing states have to be put in a separate category. We are extremely vulnerable to external shocks. We may be listed as high-income countries and upper-middle-income countries, but a single event like Hurricane Maria, where it destroys 230% of our GDP, or in BVI's case, it destroys 300% of their GDP. It's the entire country that's affected. And just to recover from that is going to take many, many, many years. And so when one looks at the question of how do you qualify for overseas development assistance, you have to have in mind the special vulnerabilities of countries like ours and the difficulty of being able to respond to um, events such as these. And therefore, there must be a, a, a special category, a special consideration given to small island developing states. There has been discussion about developing a, a special vulnerability index and that that should be the criteria that is applied. Now, we have been talking about that for quite some time. And I am glad that the UK is finally fully on board because I think they saw for themselves very um, clearly when their territories in the Caribbean were badly hit. And I think it, it drove home to them what we have been saying, what we have been arguing and advocating for for the longest while, that you have to treat these countries in the Caribbean, our small island developing states, in a, in a, in a different category. Uh, thank you. Great. 
I have something to say about that too in a minute, but I'm going to keep going around. So, Secretary General, um, um, respond to whatever you wish, and I'll make sure that, that all the questions are covered yeah. one way. I around. think one of the things that came out really clearly is uh, the need to be holistic. And if you look at what the Commonwealth has been doing, not just in the last 18 months since I've been Attorney um, uh, um, Secretary General, but before, it's been trying to respond to those holistic needs because we've been looking at debt management. Why is this one of the most heavily indebted countries and uh, regions in the world? Because it is one of the regions most affected by climatic episodes. And every time they get over one, they're hit by another. So ODA has been an upward struggle to get people to understand that. But we've been working on creating a vulnerability index, which absolutely helps to understand that this vulnerability is inherent and not as a result of fiscal ineptitude right. by the countries. Yeah. So there was this idea that it was fiscal imprudence that caused countries not to do well, whereas we know when we look at the analysis of what happened, say, last summer and autumn, that it was driven by things beyond people's control. The work that we've been doing on diaspora infrastructure financing, uh, the work on global economic governance, which has um, been critical. So all these issues have to be factored in together to have a holistic response because there's no golden or silver bullet. And if you look at what has happened to Dominique, and I must say this is the most extraordinary event because to have two Dominicans in the same room means you've got a huge percentage of our population. <laughs> so, um, three, we've got three, three, four, four. This is extraordinary case. <laughs> Um, because um, Dominica topographically um, uh, uh, encapsulates almost all the problems that any island in the, Dom in the Caribbean has, and it's all in one island. So if you are able to fix the problems in this island, you get a huge amount of data as to how to solve many of the problems in everyone else. So I think using the things that we have, that we, we need to have um, the evaluation coming from Sedima because this is going to really help us, not just for the Caribbean, but elsewhere. We need the frameworks, we need the toolkits of what work, so that it's resilience in a holistic way, which looks at trade, environment, people, society. And I think we can do this if we choose by pooling our information, and that is what we're doing in the Commonwealth. We've created an innovation hub, where we will be able to pool what works and share that data. And it's really exciting what's happening with the Association of Commonwealth Universities because we need our fantastic engineers to work out the solution of how do you build on a slope when, which doesn't involve you spending 55% on the foundation. We need to have those decisions. For example, uh, we've been talking to Michael Bloomberg, who has just built the most sustainable building. Well, can we get a toolkit or a framework that when we build back better, instead of building back badly, we build back smartly? So I think there's a huge opportunity for us, but it's only by pooling information, pooling data, disaggregating it and sharing it and not allowing one country to bear the whole burden. And, and what um, was said by Ronald is right. The, the Caribbean collectively 
have more geniuses than almost anywhere else in the world. If you look at the per capita number <laughs> of, um, of uh, uh, Nobel Prize winners we have. So there's no excuse for our region. Uh, but, but, there, but we've got a massive of talent in our Commonwealth. And I think what's great is the Commonwealth truly is a family. And when the Caribbean was hit, and when Asia was hit, and when Africa was hit, we were all hurt. And this opportunity for us to pool information and to build back a Commonwealth better, I think is there if we choose. I'm choosing. I hope everyone else is too. Excellent. Uh, right on cue, Ronald. Um, there are, you might want to have a... a a response to the innovation question, but you were definitely brought into yeah. this regional response and what we've learned worked and what didn't yeah. work. Yeah, so um, just, just a quick couple of responses. I know we're pressed for time. Innovation is present. Online too, I'm afraid. Sorry. Innovation is indeed present in the Caribbean, and a lot of it is also homegrown, um, both from the point of view of some of the points raised by the individual who raised a question in terms of development of apps, people working with, with tools like Alexi and how we facilitate access to information for, for differently abled individuals who can't necessarily see information on, on, on the news. So a lot is going on in the area of mapping. Uh, the challenge we have is to ensure that we can not only look at public-private partnership in the context of big industries, but also with some of these youth entrepreneurs or, or young talent that is doing a lot of this work in the universities. They come to me every day and I try to find ways to see how, how can Sedema engage in a partnership with these young people to unlock the potential and to have the, the sort of national-state partnership. And it's something we're still working on. We're working on the geocris platform, the Caribbean Risk Information Systems, and the geocomponent of that on our community risk information. You know, we're looking for resources to advance this and to provide information and tools to our countries, but also back to the communities. It takes me to the question about what did we do well? So the rapid review um, that we, the evaluation we commissioned, which was to try to ensure that Sedema find out from the beneficiary states how did we do in providing the, the support to you where are the gaps what can we continue to do better and quite a bit of information came through that suggested that our speed of deployment um, was was pretty was pretty good we we left Barbados for the British overseas territories impacted within six hours we were stranded in Antigua because we could not acquire one aeroplanes or sea plans to get across to the OTs. We flew the first image um, over Dominica. Um, within six hours after the all clear, we had an image of Dominica. We could see house by house um, what the situation was. But what the community also said to us was, great, you're producing this data, but at the national level and also region, it would be good if we could also get this information back uh, and to be factored in, into, into the response. And it's something that we, we thoroughly agree with. We need to not only see them as victims, but also embrace them in the, in the operations and engage with them in the process. This document is going to be a public document. It talks about the coordination in the face of limited resources and how well Sedema, the RSS, and the sort of wider Caribbean pooling of capacities under Sedema leadership did. 
It talks about the areas we have to look to strengthen, telecommunications, engagement of the community, um, you know, access, which was one of our biggest challenges, navigating communities uh, with the sort of resources we have available. We had to depend on our UK uh, friends from the military, our friends from the Canadian Armed Force, uh, the French, etc., help us with that. The issue of shock facilities, very important. One of the conversations that is now uh, very topical is going back to the idea of recovery and reconstruction and preparing for the next event. How do we broaden, strengthen our social protection mechanisms to ensure that you know, we can factor in some of these shock responsive tools that are then funneled through the conduit of a much stronger, broader national social protection uh, system. So the, the, the conversation is starting. We, we need to really engage this broadly. But as I said before, oh, institutionalize some of these things. Can you answer the question, what's the one thing? In the next five months, what's the one thing mm -hmm. that you would definitely do to prepare? Oh my goodness. Uh, <laughs> it was a good question. Can I say what I would like to oh, do? Yes, in a minute. But, well, Ron, I, what, what, I, you, you I, think about it I, when Patricia's got an answer. <laughs> okay, all right, go, go ahead. I was going to throw something out there, but go ahead. I would like to Arnest. remove the legal impediments which stopped people getting in uh, within six hours to the places they needed. That's what I'd like to see us do. Write that down. <laughs> now, are you ready, Ronald, with yours? Yeah, um, so on the... The setting up, strengthening our sub-regional warehousing so that those, those resources we need to get into communities quickly yeah. can be more at hand. Um, we definitely had to, um, you know, with the U.S. being impacted, getting supplies out of the unit, out of Florida was a huge challenge. Yeah. And we had to be looking at supplies out of, out of Panama. Um, we have an arrangement under the regional response mechanism for sub-regional warehousing in Antigua, in, in Barbados, in, in Trinidad and Jamaica. We need to scale that up, um, but also to look at uh, putting in some, uh, what I call pre-arrangements with, with air assets, yeah. sea assets ahead of time so I can get them when I, <laughs> yeah. when I, when I need to move. Great. And also working, working more with, starting to work more with vulnerable communities um, I know that's a plan and it's something we talk about, but the national disaster offices are disconnected uh, from the state mechanisms that are also involved with working with vulnerable communities. And they need to be more, more connected. They, as Dr. Twig said, the response yeah. starts with them. Yeah. The recovery starts with them. We need to enable them to deliver. Okay. Brilliant. Thank you. Q. Two, John. Two, two very quick points. Um, one about the use of innovation, innovative technologies, websites, apps, etc. Um, yeah, it, it, it's been very, it, it's really taken off in the last four or five years, and it's been enormously influential. But I think to be truly transformational, it needs to go a step further, and Ronald hinted at that. It's got to be a vehicle for dialogue, not just for, for transmission of better information. Yeah. We haven't done that. And the other point, I mean, I, I, I was gobsmacked by the question about what's the one thing you would do before the next hurricane season, because it, it's almost there anyway. Um, but maybe it's just worth looking back and thinking, that given the severity of those hurricanes last autumn, the number of lives lost was actually remarkably slow. And that, that says that actually 
The preparedness system worked pretty well in, getting, in saving lives. The, the damage to property was another matter, but I think that's a great achievement. Now, we are rapidly approaching time. I want to read some of the brilliant questions that have come out here, so I'm just going to read them all out. It's not possible, sadly, for those on the line to answer them all. We haven't got the time. But as I read them out, maybe you can think of a closing remark or answer to one of these questions or something that we can leave our audience online as well, satisfied that we've taken care of their interests. So here we go. Apologies, I'm going to rattle through it because they're really good. So Dr. Stacey Ann Robinson from Brown in the States, I would like more info on the insurance framework that James and David Pierce worked on. What was the basic structure? Why did it fail? Is it something we could revisit today? Uh, I'll, I'll help follow up afterwards. I don't quite know exactly how but we will do it. Um, but the, the answer is it was, a, it was a failure to negotiate it in, but the basic ideas of, of, a, of an insurance mechanism that people paid into are still around and could be revisited. Um, Wenella Isaacs, environmental engineering PhD student at the University of South Florida, uh, right on in Patricia Scotland QC said that climate adaptation and resilience must be bottom up. My interest is in water and wastewater management, and I'd like to know what is being done by Caribbean utilities to engage communities and build partnerships to implement climate adaptation interventions. Are climate resilient water sector investments mostly top down, or do they recognize the agency of the end use? There's lots of interesting, I mean, we have people here in ODI who have one or two thoughts on those matters. Uh, Denise Dukey from Columbia University asks, Professor Scotland mentioned the challenge of access to climate change data and minimizing technical capacity constraints. What are the plans to improve the development, use, and communication of climate information? Uh, Sandra Messiah from Public Service International asks, I'm extremely proud of Sedema, our Caribbean agency that undertook a mammoth task and did it well. My own view is that we need to see more Caribbean governments followed by development partners putting more resources into the agency. Uh, Maya Trotz from the University of South Florida also. There's obviously a community in the University of South Florida, an interested community for good reason. Um, how do islands who inherited infrastructure from colonial times upgrade their infrastructure for climate change adaptation with funding from the private sector that, benefit for, that benefited from slavery? There's a few things were thrown into this one. Uh, CARICOM is pushing for reparations. Is this a time to link reparations with climate change adaptation? Uh, Francesca de Segli from the World Food Programme Latin America and the Caribbean asks, how can national social protection systems in the Caribbean better contribute to building resilience and also support relief and recovery efforts? Can shock-ready and shock-responsive social protection systems play a role in building back better? And finally, Karen Widdes from the University of Kent asks, um, I do most of my work in Haiti and have just returned from two months there looking at progress since the 20, 2010 earthquake, listening to the discussion, it feels like the non-English speaking Caribbean is a different world, if not a different planet. How much of this cooperation sharing and so, so on includes the Spanish and French <coughs> and Creole speaking Caribbean? Lots there, sadly can't deal with them all, but it may work its way into your concluding remarks at some stage, because then we are going to have to bring this event to a conclusion. So let me start with the minister. You can say whatever you like in conclusion. Thank you very much. I think uh, we, we must not lose sight of the fact that in bu building a more resilient nation, you have to look at more than just building uh, resilient infrastructure. 
you have to look at it from a, a holistic point of view. How do you make your economy more resilient? Uh, how do you um, make communities more resilient? Uh, the, 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 there's a point that was made in relation to the whole issue of colonialism and slavery. And that is a deciding factor in where we are today. The places that we built, uh, the weakness of our infrastructure, uh, all flows from poor development practices during colonialism. And when our countries became independent, the, the, the structures in place were very weak. Um, the settlements were in, 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 in <coughs> vulnerable places. And unfortunately, that has sort of perpetuated because you, you, had, you had weak systems, you had um, uh, weak economies then. And we have never gotten to the point where we, can, uh, we have sufficient resources to improve and to reverse those trends. Uh, we are trying to do so now. And that requires significant resources. You will have to uh, ensure that you take communities out of those vulnerable areas and put them into areas that the proper studies have been done and you know that those areas are more resilient to the, the type of events that they will face. And, um, and so we, we must approach it from that point of view and it will require the, the best minds to be put together, uh, well, to come together to, to um, advise on how best you can address all of those different issues. There are many issues that were raised today. Um, all of them are very pertinent. And um, we, of course, uh, kudos was given to CDMA, and I think that is, that is, that is very necessary. CDMA had played an important role in the region. Of course, the resources were very stretched because there were so many um, islands that were affected. But certainly, I agreed with the call that there, there must be support of the um, Caribbean governments to, to the agency. And also, I think that the, there's a role for the international community to assist in um, strengthening CDMA because it plays an important role in the region. And um, so I would, I would also want to call on the, on the international community to look at helping us to strengthen our regional systems. I'm going to bring you in now, Ronald, to have your parting shot because there was a, you know, it's a good link. So over to you for your final work. No, I, I, I'm going to touch some of a reflection on my parting shot will reflect on a couple of the questions. And I, I, I have become a very good convert for the, the role of insurance in the broader spectrum of risk financing. But I also want to point out that it is subject to affordability Yes. challenges and, and should not be seen as a silver bullet. It has to be seen as part of our overall toolkit, which also sees investments into risk and vulnerability reduction. And that will ensure that the insurance facilities can be more impacting um, when, when triggered. And I do believe that the social protection mechanisms could be a very good vehicle for maximizing the benefits of the insurance payouts um, that come to countries within 14 days to address some of the most vulnerable. So um, I, will, I will leave that there as my, my sort of parting remark. Fantastic. John? 
Um, just a sort of throwaway suggestion, really. I think, and it comes from the workshop we've had today at, at ADI, where we've been exploring a whole load of challenges and opportunities and innovations. Um, there seems to be a lot of scope for exploring more creatively the potential for collaboration between different kinds of stakeholder, yep. between uh, disaster management and other government organisations and community agencies, non-government agencies, other bits of civil society, the private sector and so on. And the potential is there, but it doesn't, it doesn't seem as if it's been fully exploited yet. Secretary General. Um, I think um, what's just been said is absolutely right. What we need more than anything else is collaboration because the problems we've been discussing are affecting all of our countries, not just the Caribbean, whether it's on a micro or a macro scale. And what we've been talking about is transformation, um, a way of responding holistically to the critical issues which we now face. And actually, if you look at the sustainable development goals, they're about how do we deliver on those. And the sustainable development goals were actually, I believe, born out of the Commonwealth Charter. Because if you look at the Charter, 1 to 16 is 1 to 16 of the SDGs, and then SDG 17 is partnership, which is in the Commonwealth Preamble. To which, so I think there's a real opportunity for us to work together um, to create a regenerative model of development because that's what building back, back better it is. How do we regenerate communities, environment, uh, our, our industries, our commerce? And so I think that um, there's a huge opportunity uh, for the Caribbean as a great region within the Commonwealth for us to pool the knowledge from right across the 52 countries and build something which is really resilient, really transformational, but it's a real toolkit. And I love the idea that everyone has been saying toolkit, toolkit, toolkit. Why? Because if you work out how to do it, you can train the trainers to develop it. And in this new interconnected world where we are able to help each other even <coughs> at a distance, I think we have many of the tools which will enable us to transform our futures. But I think we have to choose to do it. And this is a big wake-up call to all of us, whether they're where public, private sector or charities, that we have one earth, one common earth, and we have to save it if we can. And the Commonwealth is creating this idea now of a common earth, we're a Commonwealth, common agenda, and so what are we going to do um, to make it safer? And I think we can do it if we choose. Marvellous. Well, thank you very much for all of your contributions. Online, via video link, in this room, um, on the panel, uh, this is what we want ODI to do, to convene uh, people like you to have these sorts of conversations, to help with reframing of big ideas about uh, what, what aid should be, what uh, a regenerative economy should look like, um, how to combine a variety of expertise to solve real-world problems to look after the interests of the most vulnerable in particular. And so I'm delighted that uh, you've all come here to ODI to have this discussion. And those online, I hope you've enjoyed it. And uh, let's, keep, let's keep the conversation going so we can make a difference. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening. 
For more ODI live event podcasts, find us on SoundCloud or subscribe to the Overseas Development Institute podcasts via iTunes. Thank you.